0: And gratitude for all the, all the prayer and the encouragement, and the love that you've shown to me and my family, particularly over these past several months, after announcing that we were prayerfully seeking uh, to, to be a lead pastor at, a, at another church. Obviously, it's, it's a very significant and uh, life-altering uh, step for our family, and one that's been made easier by your words of affirmation and and uh, very tangible expressions of love. Thank you. As you've heard, uh, we last Sunday night, First Baptist of Bellevue gathered together in a church conference. And called me to serve as their next uh, senior pastor beginning on July 19th. And sensing that God had been leading and guiding us uh, over these past several months. And uh, leading them to them and even confirming it while we were there last weekend. We accepted that call, and we look forward to just uh, serving there with, with humbleness and excitement, a little bit of fear, all that stuff that's mixed in. Where we are overjoyed at what God has been doing in us and through us. As Ryan mentioned, this this month, this very month, marks 18 years of serving on staff here at UBC, and it truly. It really has been one of the, one of the great joys of, of life and ministry for me and, and my family. We are overwhelmingly grateful. Time wouldn't permit, wouldn't permit me the opportunity here to, to share all of the, the love and my heart for you. I just want to simply, uh, just simply pause and just say thank you and that I love you. Did you know that today there are over 3 million geocaches in 191 countries on all seven continents of the world? Even when we were in Mont Bellevue this past week, we we had to stop and, and find a few geocaches while we were there. Now you may be asking, what is a geocache? What is a geocache? What's a, it's a hidden treasure. It was, founded, it was founded in the year 2000, I believe. Geocaching is the world's largest treasure hunting game. Using a, 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 a geocaching app on your phone or maybe a, a device that has GPS capabilities, you look for very cleverly hidden containers called geocaches. And when you locate one of these, one of these treasures, you get to log it on your app. Or, you, or later online, and it keeps track of all the ones that you found. But really, one of, the, one of the most fun things about finding a geocache, especially if it's a little bit larger container, it's all of the little goodies inside, the treasures that are inside that geocache. Now, I've never found any jewels. I've never found gold in these geocaches. They're usually they're filled with these, just these little trinkets and knickknacks that for a kid... It's like treasure, and for a grown-up kid like me, it's a lot of fun, too. You know, the Bible speaks of treasures and riches, but not in the the physical sense, like geocaches, but but rather in a spiritual or eternal sense. In fact, in our passage this morning from Colossians, we find both of these words in connection with Christ— treasure and riches. These things are hidden in Christ. The Apostle Paul had not planted the church of Colossae. He had not even visited there. Most believe that it was Epaphras that started it. Colossians 1.7, Paul refers to Epaphras as a beloved fellow servant and faithful minister of Christ on their behalf. The believers in Colossae had first heard the grace of God in truth from Epaphras, the Scripture says. In Paul's letter to Philemon, he refers to Epaphras as a fellow prisoner in Christ. It's likely that both of them, both of these men had, had been imprisoned uh, because of their ministry under Christ for the church. In fact, Paul is probably writing this letter to Colossians in, in prison in Rome or maybe under house arrest. And though he had not seen the believers there in Colossae, he was deeply connected to them through Epaphras. They probably spent, I mean, long hours, maybe through the night, praying for this local body of believers, longing to see them rooted and built up in Christ, established in their faith and abounding in thanksgiving. He wants them, Paul is wanting them to see the absolute supremacy and sufficiency of of Christ. He wants them to open the treasure trove of Christ and to know that, that they are indeed rich in Christ. Dear UBC friends, as our family prepares to depart, I mean, this is what I pray for you. As I've come to this passage, this is the passage I pray for you that you may know with greater certainty and depth and awe how rich you are in Christ. We see this theme throughout the book of Colossians. The first part of chapter 2, it's it's particularly clear. I want to ask you to turn with me. Go to your phones or iPads, your copy of Scripture, turn to Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 we'll read just these first five verses together. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding The main idea of this passage can be, can be summed up in the following sentence. The Christ-filled life in community is fueled by agonizing, admonishing, and affirming words. The Christ-filled life in community is fueled by agonizing, admonishing, and affirming words, and particularly words of prayer. See, Paul wants this community of believers to know what it is to be rich in Christ. He wants them to know and experience the Christ-filled, Christ-centered, and Christ-exalted life lived out with, among the community of believers, his church. And this deep longing combined with a deep affection for this church compelled him to come before the Father in, in agonizing and, and admonishing and, and affirming prayer. I believe this passage gives us an example of how we too should pray for one another. And these three characteristics of prayer will will serve as our outline. First, the Christ-filled life in communities fueled by an agonizing, an agonizing prayer. Look again at verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. He mentions here three groups of people. The first are the believers there in Laodicea. Laodicea is a city in the valley, of, um, in the valley there in Asia Minor. It's about 11, and a half, 11 miles northwest of Colossae. Colossae is a city there in modern-day Turkey. Um, it was known for its... Um, purple-dyed wood, or wool. And Laodicea, it was, it was famous for its black wool. That whole area was, was known for textiles. So you had those two churches, and then he mentions those that he had not yet met face-to-face. See, Paul had spent three years in Ephesus. Ephesus is about oh, 100 miles northwest of, of, these, of these cities. And he, during his time there, I'm sure he met people from all throughout the region. He established that church there. In fact, it was Epaphras that came to faith there at Ephesus. And they probably sent him out to, to share the gospel. And he went and established the church of Colossa and Laodicea. People would come back and Paul would have the opportunity to, to speak and to encourage and to build them up in their faith. But there were many, many others that he had not seen face to face. And these are who he's addressing. Verse 1 begins with this word for. And anytime you see a word for, you need to look back at the previous verses or the section our, or chapters and just kind of see what the context, what is it, what is it leading to? What is, what, is, what, is its, what is its connection? We'll go back there to verse 28 of chapter 1. It says, him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So here we see Paul's overarching mission. He wants to proclaim Christ, to proclaim Christ And how does he proclaim Christ? It says by warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And why does he proclaim Christ? Well, again, in order to present them mature in Christ. He's wanting them to, to know Christ. He's wanting them to grow and to mature in Christ. And to that end, he toils, he labors for them, struggling with all of God's energy or the strength that's powerfully at work within him. If you go back a few more verses, look at verse 24. Paul speaks of sufferings for the sake of and filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction as an extension of Christ's ministry. What Paul is participating, he's joining in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of the church. And even though he's not presently with these believers in Colossae, He is suffering and struggling and agonizing on their behalf that they may be rich in Christ. So back to verse 1 of chapter 2. Paul Paul wants these believers to know how great a struggle he has for them. And the word he uses here and also there in 129, this word for struggle, it means to, to fight, to contend. It's the word agona or agonize. We see the same word again in chapter 4. If you flip a page over in verse 12, he says, speaking of Epaphras, Paul says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, he greets you, always struggling or agonizing on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. See, Epaphras is struggling. He is, he's agonizing on their behalf in his prayers. Why? Well, it's for the same reason that Paul does. He wants them to know and to grow into Christ, to stand mature and fully assured in all of the will of God. Obviously, Epaphras had spent time with, with Paul there in Rome. And can you imagine what it was like. I mean, wouldn't you love to be just in the room when these two brothers were agonizing in prayer for these believers? I mean, what a prayer meeting that would be. Brothers and sisters, when was the last time you agonized in prayer for our church or for sister churches? Or for our missionaries. So usually we engage in agonizing prayer when, when times are, are difficult, and that's a good thing. When we've been through difficult times as a church, it's, it's really brought us to that kind of kind of struggling prayer, agonizing prayer. In our lives, when, when marriages have struggled, when children have gone astray from the Lord, when, when disease takes over the body, when the loss of a loved one invades our lives, these are, these are times to learn the agony of prayer. As fellow believers, we should, we should count it a privilege to agonize in prayer with our brothers and sisters to weep with those who weep, to mourn with those who mourn, to struggle alongside those who are struggling. Church, I'm grateful for the ways that you've agonized with me and my family during difficult times over these years. We had adopted that young girl and then the mother came and changed her mind and took her from us. You prayed and agonized, wept with us, you prayed with me and my family when I faced a cancer diagnosis and surgery, and and recovery. I I still have the, uh, the little journal we had this there at the hospital, and you'd come by, and it's filled with just words of encouragement and agonizing prayers. I was going through it just the other day, and just my eyes filling up with tears. So grateful for the ways you walked with me during those times. You prayed with me and my family over these past several months as we've agonized, uprooting from here and going and planting in another ministry. It's also been been my deep joy, a sweet, sweet joy to agonize in prayer with you. Sometimes there in my office, counseling, sometimes in your home, sometimes at the hospital on the phone, at a funeral service, many other times. But it's not just during difficult times that we agonize in prayer. See, the church in Colossae, they they were a pretty healthy church. They were doing well. His agonizing prayer isn't an antibiotic for spiritual illness. It's rather, it's more like a, a, a B12 booster for their spiritual growth for their edification and sanctification. See, there's, that's, that's one of the reasons why, why I love us in our pastoral prayer, even just a while ago when, um, when Ryan came and just praying for our ministries that we're connected with to pray for sister churches to pray for churches in Dubai that we have connection with to lift them up before the Lord and say oh God do a work God may the gospel go forth powerfully among them God grow them up and mature them in Christ for your glory we need to be agonizing in prayer for Emmanuel Baptist Church here in Springdale as we send Ben Seawald and his family to, to lead that body of believers. And as you send me out from your midst, I mean, I covet your prayers for First Baptist on Mount Bellevue. Pray that Christ would be proclaimed powerfully and gloriously. Pray that we may present everyone there mature in Christ, Pray that I labor well with all the strength of God that is powerfully working in me. And I promise you that that we will be praying and agonizing in the same ways for you. Secondly, a Christ-filled life and community is fueled by an admonishing prayer. By admonishing prayer. Admonition was a vital part of Paul's ministry to the churches. See, to the church of Ephesus, Paul did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Acts 20, 31. To the church of Corinth, Paul Paul wrote a letter of, of encouragement and admonition, not to make them ashamed, but to, the word says, admonish them as his beloved children. 1 Corinthians 4.14. And to the church of Thessalonica, Paul encourages the believers to respect those who labor among them. He's speaking of those pastors and elders as they oversee and admonish them. 1 Thessalonians 5.12. In our, in our book, Colossians, in chapter 3, Paul urges the believers to let the word of Christ dwell in them richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. To admonish is to, to counsel, to guide, to build up, to, to urge, to charge, or to call to action. And as Christians, we should do this with one another in our conversations, in our worship, our gatherings, and in our prayer. If you look again back at our passage, you can can almost hear Paul pouring out admonishing prayer on behalf of these believers in Colossae. Look at verse 2. He says, that their hearts may be encouraged. And the Bible, when you see the word heart, it's not talking about this organ. It's not talking about just our emotions. It's talking about our whole being, our personality, our intellect, our will, our emotions, everything about us and he's 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 continually praying that these believers will be encouraged and comforted or strengthened in the deepest part of their being so that it affects every aspect of their lives and their community together they were there there'll be a there'll be a supernatural community but he goes on to show that this encouragement of heart it flows out of the out of love it comes from the sphere of, of love. It says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. Knit together. It's a beautiful phrase. It's like, it's like uh, these members, they're all a, a thread of, of or string, and they're being woven together into one beautiful tapestry that brings honor and glory to God. Knit together. And it's the fabric of love. Paul says it similarly to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians 3, 17 and 19. He says that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The believers are rooted and grounded in love so that they may be strengthened and encouraged to to comprehend with all the saints, with with all the saints, with their hearts knit together in an uncommon community and unity so that they may know the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ and be filled with all the fullness of God. Colossians 3.14, he admonishes the church to, and this is what he says, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Put on love, which binds or is knit together perfectly in harmony and unity. See, because we belong to Christ, we're knit together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are family bound together in the tapestry of love that that flows from the love of Christ and the love that he has for his bride. Oh, to pray for this kind of loving unity in our body, in our churches, and in our sister churches. But there's more. There's more to Paul's passionate words of admonishing prayer. Look, he, he wants them to come into the full riches of complete understanding there in the middle of verse 2, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. He longs for these believers to to move closer to the wealth of spiritual understanding. I don't know about you, but I have a a long, long way to go in understanding the beauty and the glory and the majesty of, of Jesus Christ. All of us do. But every time I'm in the Word, every time a a friend comes and builds me up, every time I get to pray with someone, every time we we gather together and we sit under the teaching, every time we gather and sing words rich in the gospel, we're coming ever so closer to the full riches of complete understanding. We're gaining more and more every day until one day we, we will spend an eternity basking in the glory of the very presence of our Savior, understanding more of His glory and knowing Him. Paul goes on. He wants them to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. So he desires that they more clearly and distinctly see the, the truth and the validity of God's mystery. And what is that mystery? Well, he, he tells us. He says, which is Christ. Another version says, namely Christ. That mystery is Christ. Look back at, at uh, Colossians 1:27, first chapter, verse 27. To them, God chose to make known or to reveal how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul had just written one of the most spectacular christological hymns on the preeminence and supremacy and glory and salvific work of Christ. It begins there in in, in verse 15 of chapter one. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage to, to sit and to soak and to meditate on. Jesus Christ, the the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation, the creator, sustainer, and ruler of all things, the head of the church, the dwelling place of God, the reconciler of all things, the one who made peace by the blood of his cross, Jesus Christ, the reconciler of all things. The one who reconciled us by his death so that we might be holy and blameless. This king of the universe, this king, Jesus, is God's mystery revealed. This king of the universe is the one who lives in us. Praise God. Ben asked me, can I get an amen? Where are you, Ben? There we go. Friends, this is, I mean, it's just mind-blowing. It's stunning. It's, it's overwhelming to take in. And it should make us fall on our knees in adoring worship. That God's Son is in us, the hope of glory. Paul is praying that these believers take hold of the knowledge of this spectacular and transformational truth. Friends, you may be here this morning, or maybe listening online, and you're wondering what, what the Bible, what does it mean that Christ is in us? What's well, part of, a, of God's great redemption plan that began there in the Garden of Eden when he, when he created man and woman in His image? And we were to have perfect relationship. They were in perfect relationship with Him. Yet they didn't walk, they didn't want to walk according to God's ways. In fact, they rebelled against Him and went their own way. And the sin of that, of that rebellion severed their relationship with, with God and carried with it an incredibly high price, that of spiritual death. And that has been passed on from generation to generation to generations. To all of us. All of us are sinners. And because God is holy and just, He had to respond in that way. He had to sever that relationship because He's holy. And He has to punish sin because He is just. But yet, out of great love, mercy, and grace, He provided a way for us to be restored. We've been singing about it this morning. You heard it in the testimonies of, of those who are going to be baptized the penalty would have to be paid we would we would have to be made righteous again so god sends his son who lived the perfect life and because he was sinless he could he could die on the cross in our place he could take our sin upon himself and he could bear the penalty of that sin He was buried and he rose from the dead conquering sin and death. And for everyone who turns from their sin and trusts in Christ alone as Savior and Lord will be saved. And they will receive the gift of eternal life and be restored into relationship with him. You can be in Christ. For he is mine and I am his. And in the moment that we're saved, we are united with Christ. And we receive all of the benefits and blessings of redemption. Oh, friends, if you don't know him, would you receive him today? Why delay? Run to Christ. Turn from sin and run to Christ. I'll be down here at the end of the service. Many of our pastors will be at the the doors. We'd love to talk to you more about what it means to be a follower of Christ. God's mystery is Christ, Christ in us. But Paul, he goes on now to describe the the nature of Christ there in verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This word hidden doesn't mean like concealed or out of sight like a geocache. Its it's better definition would be kind of stored or, or deposited And when hidden is connected with treasures, like in this passage, it it gives the sense of a of a treasury stored up with, with really all the accumulated riches of spiritual wisdom and understanding and knowledge. And because followers of Christ have Christ living in them, because Christ is living in you and me, we have access to this treasure trove of riches. It's beautiful. Matt Boswell and Matt, Matt Papa wrote a hymn entitled, How Rich a Treasure We Possess. I think it captures a bit of what this passage is, is saying. Listen to this it says, How rich a treasure we possess in Jesus Christ our Lord. His blood, our ransom and defense, his glory, our reward. The sum of all created things are worthless in compare, for our inheritance is him whose praise angels declare. How free and costly was the love displayed upon the cross. While we were dead in untold sin, the sovereign purchased us. The will of God the Father demonstrated through the Son. The Spirit seals the greatest work, the work which Christ has done. How vast and measureless the flood of mercy unrestrained the penalty was paid in full. The spotless lamb was slain. Salvation, what a priceless gift received by grace through faith. We stand in robes of righteousness. We stand in Jesus' name. We need to daily encourage one another with these kinds of words and songs. We need to as I just read, they'll let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. We need to daily come before the throne of grace with with these admonishing prayers. We need to pray for one another and for our churches that our hearts would be encouraged being knit together in love. We need to pray for one another and for our churches that we would take hold of the full riches of complete understanding and knowledge of the mystery of God, the mystery who has a name, Jesus, the all-encompassing Christ in whom contains all the accumulated wealth and riches and treasures of wisdom and knowledge and oh to know him he is the one who lives in us he is the one who is for us and in whom nothing can come against us we need admonishing prayers for one another so that we might know and live out the worth and the honor and the glory and beauty and blessing that belongs to christ alone we need admonishing prayers for one another that we might behold and savor the the root of Jesse in whom the spirit of the Lord rests, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. We need admonishing prayers for, for one another in our churches and our ministries until the day when the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Church, this will be my ongoing prayer for you. Would you pray like that for us? Would you pray like this for one another? Would you pray like this through, through your member directory as you, as you see those faces and names, oh, that they would be rich in Christ, that they would know the riches, the depths of understanding in Christ? Would they they behold the, the joy and the wonder of being in Christ? Pray like that for your church. Would you pray like this for the churches and ministries and mission partnerships that you support and the churches you send pastors and members to serve? A deep longing and affection for the church and for believers to have Christ as the, as the center point of life, it fuels an agonizing prayer, an admonishing prayer, and lastly, it fuels an affirming prayer, an affirming prayer. Why does Paul admonish them toward all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ? Well, he wants them, he says, he wants them to be grounded in truth. A rich theology repels false teaching. That's why he paints in chapter 1 this beautiful picture of Christ. And then he moves into chapter 2. He says, I want you to know this rich one. And then there in verse, in the verse, he's, he's wanting them to, to, be, to be guarded. Verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Paul wants to keep them from stumbling. It's, you see, it's not the outright heresies that, that trip up the church. We, we can see those and, and move away from those or come against those. It's really those, those attractive and fine-sounding arguments that take the truth and just mix it with, with just a little bit of error. For example, the prosperity gospel, it's all over the church, all over the world. It's rampant. It says that if you, if you have enough faith, and they'll quote scriptures, God will bless you with, with health and wealth. There's this permissive grace gospel, which is also a false gospel. It's a, it has some truth to it, but it's just off. It says that, that God loves you just as you are. That's true. But, and God's love is unconditional. That is true. But because it's unconditional, he therefore accepts whatever lifestyle choices that you make. That's not the truth of the gospel. There are many other false teachings and plausible arguments out there that try to weave their way into the church. See, we must affirm the the supremacy and the exclusivity of Christ, and we need to pray for one another in this way, pray that we would be grounded in the truth. That's what Paul is wanting here. This is what that affirming prayer, oh, that they might be grounded in the truth and not be swayed by these plausible arguments. Paul goes on in verse 5, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit. See, Paul is in Rome, miles and miles away. He's obviously not with them, but he says that he's with them in spirit. And this isn't like one of those the phrases that we say, Hey, you'll be in my thoughts and prayers. It's, it's much deeper than that. See, because of the, the, median role, the mediating role of the, of the Holy Spirit and the truth that we are united in Christ, Paul is speaking more about the profound kind of corporate sense of identity that we experience together as believers. Though they're not face-to-face, they still enjoy the, the, that special affirming fellowship found in the Spirit it's a unity of presence that's not bound by space or time your friends and though we we will end up 9 10 maybe 11 hours away depending on how fast you drive <laughs> i will be with you in spirit just as you will be with me in spirit and when the lord allows us to see one another again that fellowship it'll just be like we We've just seen each other and we'll once again be filled with words of affirmation and encouragement. The spiritual unity will will ultimately come to that fullest fruition when we together link arm in arm before the throne of grace. And we're with one voice glorifying the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ where we're singing a, a new song completely unified by the Spirit in Christ as his bride. What a day that will be. We're united in spirit. Paul was united in spirit with this body. Affirmed them in that. But not only is this affirming prayer for a grounded truth and united spirit, but it's also for an established faith. See, Paul closes this section. Look at these words. Rejoicing to see your good order And the firmness of your faith in Christ. He's hearing reports about the the structure and the the strength of their faith, and he affirms it, and he affirms them with what? Rejoicing. He has no greater joy than seeing their faith established. This isn't a competition. It isn't about, well, this church is growing. and this It's, it's none of that. We, we want to we see our churches all glorifying God and growing deep in their faith, being established in the Word. We had the joy of seeing God's work in the lives of Kendall, Cooper, and Ryan. We heard their testimonies. We rejoice in it. We rejoice. And here shortly, we'll get to see them uh, follow the Lord in obedience and baptism, and we rejoice. Our hearts just should burst, almost come out. I mean, we're gonna, we're gonna celebrate what God has done. Praise God. Every time we partake in the Lord's Supper, we're prayerfully affirming one another's faith. Every time we gather, we have the opportunity of prayerfully affirming the, the good order and firmness of one another's faith. We sing these songs, we do it together. When I, hear of, uh, when I hear of your ongoing and growing faith in Christ from Mont Bellevue, friends, know that I'm going to be rejoicing and lifting up praise to God for that good work in you. And though I will be absent in body, I will be with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. There's one kind of disappointing thing about geocaching you're not guaranteed to find the cash, you're not guaranteed to find the treasure. I've been out many times, my family can attest, and we look and we look and it's hidden too too good. Sometimes the app or the GPS will take us to that general vicinity, but it's, I mean, as 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 hard as we can, we just can't find it sometimes. Friends, it's not the case with the treasure of Christ. Oh, brothers and sisters, Christ, He lives in us. We are we are rich in Christ. You and I are rich in Christ. Oh, that we might know the ocean's depths, the heaven's heights of the fullness of Christ. Until Christ returns or calls us home, may we pray for one another in our churches and Ministries with agonizing prayer, with admonishing prayer, and with affirming prayer until we grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. That we may be filled to the, to the measure of all the fullness of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would encourage the hearts of my dear brothers and sisters in Christ here at UBC. Knit them together in love, that they may embrace all the riches of full and complete understanding as well as the knowledge of your great mystery, now revealed in your Son, Jesus Christ. And, O Father, may they take hold of the all-encompassing Christ and dive into all the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge of Christ, given the grace to remain grounded in truth, united in spirit, established in faith, that they may with one voice glorify you, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. May they more clearly know that that because Christ is in them, they are rich in Christ. And may their Christ-filled lives be fueled by ongoing, agonizing, admonishing, and affirming prayers for one another and for your church. In Jesus' name.